So this is a good opportunity to sort of re reset and remind you where we've been going back way back to you know October, September. What we started doing was a series that overall we're calling Sin, Salvation, and the Savior. Or I think it's Sin, the Savior, and Salvation. Anyway, it's our midweek Bible study. But essentially what it is is all things related to salvation. We're just sort of taking a deep dive into the doctrine of salvation, what theologians call soteriology, and sort of trying to understand uh, all that we can about God's amazing grace and to correctly handle the Word of God and, and so forth. So we looked at you know, passages like 1 John 3, James 2. We've looked at several of those passages. Then we started down a path of look at what we, which we call the deep wells of salvation, looking at key words like redemption and repentance. And um, coming off of this discussion that we've had for the last three weeks on repentance, I thought I would kind of launch into another mini-series here all under the heading of salvation on Wednesday nights called What the Gospel is Not. And my experience is this is likely to take several weeks, but um, so I, I've got 200 slides that I've kind of pieced together from different things and put in here that at some point or another I'd like to get to. But depending on where the discussion goes, I may deviate a little bit and we may chase a few rabbits and so forth. We're not on a particular agenda or not trying to get through a particular curriculum per se, but I really feel like this would be a very instructive thing to talk about, what the gospel is not. And so we're going to kind of start at the macro level and zero in and eventually get to several things and, and show you from Scripture why a lot of what people pass off as the gospel is not really the gospel. All right, so that makes sense? So um, to introduce this, uh, I, and again, same thing as always, if you have questions, we, we want, we encourage discussion, we need it. If you're thinking of something, uh, someone else may be thinking the same thing, and, and I really enjoy that, and that's what I love about these Wednesday evening uh, Bible studies. Um, but to kick this off, uh, I just thought I'd share with you a little bit about my experience with a passion for the clarity, accuracy, and urgency of the gospel. That is the core mission statement of Not By Works Ministries and any ministry that I'm associated, that's what I'm committed to. So um, that started because years ago, uh, about 32 years ago exact, to be exact, uh, is that right? Two, uh, two, two, let's see, 1990, 1990, this is what, 2021, 20, 2021, right? Is that what you said? Oh, I see, I can't hear. I thought you said 2020, and I was going to tell you you were wrong. You're living in the, living in the past, Steve, come on. Uh, so anyway, that's roughly 30 years, okay, 30 years. Uh, I was introduced uh, to this issue and became aware, or was made aware, that to my shock, there are differing views on the gospel. I thought the gospel was pretty clear. Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. I mean, I was raised in a Christian home, trusted Christ at age six, but boy, was I naive. And so I went down that rabbit hole, and the Lord just developed in me early on a passion for this subject. And it's just been my driving passion since then. Now, I have a E almost equally uh, passionate interest in eschatology, the study of the end times, but there's a correlation there because of the urgency of the gospel, end times stuff matters, right? And so there's a natural um, synergy there between my uh, interest in the gospel and the clarity, accuracy, and urgency of it and the end times. And so 
this, a lot of this material is the result of 30 years of studying this and teaching this. And I wanted to emphasize uh, what I mean by clarity, accuracy, and urgency. That's not just a meaningless tagline. Those words are fraught with meaning and intentionally chosen, and we founded Not By Works in 99, so it's 22, going on 22 years this year, um, and it's been our mission statements from the beginning. So clarity has to do with how you communicate something. Is it clear, right? You can be right, but if you're unclear in how you communicate something, that proposes a problem, right? So that's clarity. Then the second factor is accuracy, which is different from clarity because accuracy has to, to do with is it in its very essence and substance correct, right? So you can be accurate and not clear. You can also be clear, but you can be clearly conveying a false gospel. So that's not good, right? In fact, if someone's going to preach a false gospel, we hope they're not clear, right? But we want to strive for both clarity and accuracy. And then the third component is urgency, which is the reality that we're not promised tomorrow. James says life is but a vapor. And uh, also the Lord may come back in the twinkling of an eye at any moment. So there is a sense in which we're dealing with an eternal aspect here. It's not something that you can say, well, let me think about it. I'll get back to you in six months. You know, we want people to know that there is a steep penalty on sin, that sin, uh, that, you know, it's appointed unto men once to die and after this the judgment. And if you, Jesus said, if you die in your sins, you know, there, you, you can't go to heaven, period. So clarity, accuracy, and urgency. So that's kind of a quick overview of why this is important to me. Um, I love, like you, you wouldn't be here on a midweek Wednesday night if you didn't. I love the Bible. I love studying the Bible. I love theology. I've studied every area of theology at the highest levels. I love to write and teach about it. But what really makes my heart dance is the essence of the gospel and the end times. And so, um, so that's why we're doing this on Wednesday nights, because it's something that I think is helpful. You, you, I find that many people uh, are like I was. They, they lack a real precision in understanding the gospel. And so um, that's why we've been doing this. And, then, and this is because we talk so much about repentance and based on some feedback and things that I've gotten, I thought this would be a good next step. So to introduce it, let me say um, what I found is that I can explain to people in churches or conferences or wherever all day long what the gospel is, and I'll be met with a chorus of amens. But it's when I begin to focus on what the gospel is not that I get the hate mail. I step on toes, right? And uh, you can talk back and forth and talk all about what the gospel is. It's about Jesus. It's about the cross. It's about Calvary. It's about grace. It's about his atoning work. He died. He rose again. All of that. But when you really start to drill down, you, you find there are differences. And they're not just semantics. They're, they're not semantics at all. They're substantive. So you know, that's why I think it's important to sort of think through. Now, I, as we get there, we probably won't get to any of the actual what the gospel is not issues tonight because I want to set the stage by kind of making you aware of the problem. But when we do, there may be some of them that you found yourself sort of using that language or thinking in those terms. And, and if so, that's what these studies are about. Don't just take my word for stuff. 
use that as a challenge to say, you know what, I wonder if he's right. Maybe I shouldn't use that term, or maybe I shouldn't communicate the gospel in that way. Let me study the Word of God and see what it says. I don't want you to you know, assume that what I'm saying is true and just automatically believe it because I said it. I want you to go to the Word of God and, and validate And of course we're going to do that, but still I want you to think through these issues. Uh, my guess is most of you in this midweek study are, are, are probably not going to struggle with most of the issues that we're going to address in the coming uh, weeks, but there may be some. Uh, so uh, one of the verses that has meant a lot to me, in fact, often... Um, I'll put this in an inscription in a book when someone at a conference asked me to sign Getting the Gospel Wrong. Each of the books that I, that, each of my books I have a different verse that just I associate with that book and I'll put with my name when someone asks me to sign it. And for Getting the Gospel Wrong, it's this one. O Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust. And uh, as Paul told Timothy there at the end of his first letter, uh, you know, ministry is not for the faint of heart. And you have a great stewardship, young Timothy, and you need to guard it. And I believe that for whatever reason, you know, the Lord's called me into ministry, and he's also given me a real passion for the gospel, and I've got to guard that. And so I can abide many differences of viewpoint on a lot of different non-essential issues, but when it comes to the gospel, you know, I've, I've in 32 years of ministry, 30 years of really being clear on the gospel, I've had multiple situations where I've had to, you know, stand firm for the gospel. Uh, ministries that I started, I've had to leave down the road because the, the ministry ended up, the board ended up compromising on the gospel. Um, I talked to, I was on the phone tonight, I got here early today and was talking to someone who called me through the website and it was a lady and she said, uh, does, have you experienced that, you know, the, that, in ministry, because she teaches a Bible study, that the devil sometimes really attacks you, you know, for that. And I said, boy, you know, how long have you got? You know, I could write books about it. And I think especially because one of Satan's primary goals is to blind men's hearts to the gospel, any ministry that is passionately and accurately promoting the good news about Jesus Christ is going to be right on his radar and right in his crosshairs. In fact, if you're not struggling with attacks, you know, demonic attacks, um, and I don't mean by that sort of, you know, apparitions and weird poltergeist stuff. I just mean any type of persecution. Paul said any, all who desire to live godly will suffer persecution. So any type of struggles that you know are the result of taking a stand for truth uh, is ultimately demonic. Um, and, and if you... Uh, uh, you know, so I'm sure if you've experienced this, uh, you know what I'm talking about. You know that this can be very painful. This can be something, but for me, it's, a, it's not an issue. It's not something I can choose not to do. I've just, it's never, I make lots of mistakes. I'm, I'm far from perfect. I've got a lot of blind spots and weaknesses, but this has been one that I've never been tempted to say, well, I'll just brush that under the rug and go along because I need you know, need the popularity, or I need the money, or I need the friends. I mean, I've had multiple friends that I've uh, had for years that at, at different points we've parted ways because I love, I love them, but I love the gospel more. And uh, so this is something that is worth taking a stand for. So to set the stage, let's talk about the gospel in our culture. So tonight what I'd like to do is just sort of give you an overview of uh, 
the cultural milieu in which we live, this uh, mindset that characterizes contemporary culture, particularly in the West here. Um, but in a survey that was done by Pew Research, um, it, they call it the Religious Landscape Study, and this is, um, you know, in, in America. They asked people of different faiths. Of course, America is a, is a melting pot of cultures, right? Actually, somebody said, I uh, forget who used this phrase, but I've, I've often thought how profound it was. America really isn't so much a melting pot as it is a stew pot. <laughs> Because a melting pot implies you come here and you sort of embrace the culture. What we've become is just to each his own. Everyone can come here if you're a Muslim, if you're a Buddhist, if you're whatever. You can sort of bring your culture here and you, you have somehow this right to force us to adapt to you instead of you adapting to us. But that's, that's another subject. So in our culture, 96% of Hindus say they believe many religions can lead to eternal life. 83% of Buddhists say they believe many religions can lead to eternal life. 80% of mainline Protestants say they believe many religions can lead to eternal life. Now, what do we mean by mainline Protestant? Anybody want to define that? Or? Episcopalians, I mean, um, I mean, that's an example, right? really. Episcopalians, what else? Mm -hmm. Baptist, Methodist, Lutheran, well, uh, okay. All of them, mainline main denominations. Not universalists, though. I mean, obviously they would too, but like you wouldn't be considered. No, no. They, this would be part of the. You know, they would be established Christian <laughs> denominations. Seventy-nine percent of Jews say they believe many religions can lead to eternal life. Seventy-nine percent of Catholics say they believe many religions can lead to eternal life. Sixty-five percent of Muslims. Say they can believe. Say they believe many religions uh, can lead to eternal life, and 66% of American Christians say they believe many religions can lead to eternal life. So, on the survey, Christian is defined as someone who believes you must have a born again experience to be to go to heaven. And so, of that group, 66% said, yeah, I believe many religions can lead to eternal life. Now, I want you to notice something, that we have now surpassed Muslims in terms of the percentage of people who believe many religions can lead to eternal life. It was 65% of Muslims, 66% of Christians. Now, that's really profound. And what does that tell you? It tells you that the church is becoming more and more apostate, the church is departing further and further from the authority of God's word, right? 29% um, of American Christians say their religion is the only true faith. That was the way the question was worded, which means roughly 7 out of 10 don't believe that. And then worded differently, only 12% of American Christians say only Christianity will lead to eternal life. Wow. Wow. We have no idea how quickly the, the evangelical Christian culture in this country completely became compromised by political correctness and by societal pressure. Um, 
you know, they took God out of the compulsory government schooling in, what, 63, I think. And so we're several generations later now, and we wonder why, you know, adult Christians today, if they're even Christians, that's a, we don't know. They may think they're a Christian, but they've never trusted in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation, but they profess to be anyway, uh, have somehow felt it necessary in a private survey to check the box that says, no, 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 you can go to heaven some other way because they, they, they value feelings more than truth. Now you, they base their views on experience rather than the authoritative word of God. And uh, I'm working on uh, my next uh, culture shock, and I'm, I just have been so swamped. I, I'm a week behind on, on that. And, uh, but what I'm thinking I'm going to do it on, I'm going to call it What's Wrong with Wrong? And what I'm finding is that in our culture, it has become automatically offensive to call somebody wrong. Mm -hmm. And and I'm saying, well, what's wrong with wrong? I mean, I, why, why does that have to involve some implicit personal attack, right? Um, I mean, you know, but yet if you say that someone's wrong, boy, you are unleashing the wrath of society against you you know you are how dare you you're mean and hateful and i'm just i've I've run into this and i just want to say look i didn't call you ugly or fat or stupid or insult your mother i just said you're wrong now you may not be that's that's fine maybe you think i'm wrong i mean and that's usually where i'll go with it is why are you so offensive do you, do you think I'm right? And they'll go, well, no. Okay, so we're in the same boat. We both think each other's wrong. Why is it okay for you to think I'm wrong, but it's not okay for me to think you're wrong? I remember speaking at a church one time in Alaska, and uh, uh, I don't know if I've told this story before, but it was uh, I was teaching in a, an adult Sunday school class before the main service, and I don't know, there was probably maybe 30 or 40 people there. And I was teaching on eschatology. They asked me to give an overview of eschatology. And about halfway through, a lady at the back raised her hand and said, um, it sounds like, you know, you're giving, with the, the views you're describing, because I was kind of describing them in layman's terms and just trying to keep it simple. It wasn't a Bible college class or seminary class, you know, but she obviously was well studied. And she said, it sounds like you're, uh, the stuff you're, the, the view you're espousing is a dispensational view. Is that correct? And I said, Yes, ma'am. Good, good job. You know, you, you must have studied this or something like that. She goes, well, do you give any credence at all to the amillennial covenant theology view? And I said, no. <laughs> and then I kind of went on. I mean, I didn't have time to get into a debate over that. And I didn't even know for sure what view she took from that question, although it, it kind of raised a little bit of a red flag. So I went on, and a sentence or two later, she kind of raised her hand again. And she said, well, wait, wait well, why not? And I said, because they're wrong. Next question. You know, well, boy, she didn't like that at all. You know, boy, she, I might have, I might as well have insulted the Pope or something. I don't know. But, um, so, uh, it, uh, later on, she came after the session came up, boy, she was offended. And I just said, look, I mean, I, I can't, 
you wouldn't want me to be up here like a straw in the wind and 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 not and, and say that everything's right. There's what's wrong with wrong. There's there's right and there's wrong. Now I could be wrong. I mean I'm I'm not perfect. And and if I'm wrong, then you should go with what the Bible says and follow your heart. Don't just take my word for it, but don't be offended because I took a stand, right? And so the the culture we're living in is one that that that, that, that likes to draw. Uh, circles of inclusion instead of lines of distinction and it's becoming worse and worse and worse and any line of distinction now to where if you if you call someone a boy versus a girl that can get you in trouble you know you can be kicked out you can be fired from the school as a teacher because there's no lines none they get to, everybody gets to determine what their own truth uh, is and that's a makes presenting the gospel and articulating the gospel and holding firm to the gospel much more difficult today than it ever has been. I believe it's a sign of the times. I think the debates that people had in the mid-20th century when sharing the gospel were completely different than the debates that we're having now and the challenges and, and, and the whole realm of apologetics, which is defending the faith, has taken on different uh, and must take on different strategies today than it, than it has in the past. So to help sort of illustrate that, I want to kind of give an overview of, of postmodernism. I don't think we've talked about that in here, have we? Any, any of you guys that have been here a long time? Okay. Sometimes I feel at the last minute I'll bring something into a thing and I forget, but I know I hadn't intentionally done it. So postmodernism is um, the, the term that we use to describe our culture today. It's a postmodern culture. And really, human history uh, to date can be broken down into three large segments. There's the pre-modern era, the modern era, and now the post-modern era. And, uh, you know, those, those of us that s study this and sort of, you know, have written about this, have wondered if, in fact, there really is already a fourth uh, that sometimes is called, called post-truth or post-Christian. Uh, to me, it's just more of, a, more of the same. It's just sort of the same lineage, but it it's doesn't necessarily represent a hard, fast distinction like I'm going to show you between these other three, but I, I certainly appreciate and understand what we mean by post-truth world or post-Christian world. But this is kind of helpful to see the way people have the, the way people has think has changed, okay? Because it's it's uh, even though you and I may be biblicists, and I, I've taken to using that word more than just Christian because Christian is almost in the culture anyway, meaningless. If you're not a Muslim or don't live in the East, you're probably a Christian, they think. But what we mean is biblicist, meaning that the Bible is our only standard for our beliefs, attitudes, and practices. And so I understand that we're all biblicists, but yet the reality is, it's kind of like the old Japanese proverb, if you want to know about water, don't ask a fish, right? Because it's just all around us. And so we have breathed in the postmodern air and it's reflected in a lot of what we do, whether we realize it or not. Um, and so hopefully this 
little survey will help illustrate uh, illustrate some of that. So if you want to put some time markers in here, the pre-modern era, again, it's not like God bellowed forth from heaven or wrote in, in the sky a particular date. But as we look back at history, we clearly sort of see a shift around the age of the Enlightenment. So most people sort of pinpoint the French Revolution and the storming of the Bastille as sort of the end of the pre-modern era. Okay, Again, it's, it's kind of like dispensations. It's not like a hard, fast thing. There's typically a little bit of transition. Uh, but this is a good time marker if you want to, in your mind, sort of put it on a timeline. Um, and then the modern era was much shorter. Most people uh, sort of take the modern era to up to 1989, which then puts us in the postmodern era, or as I said, post-truth, post-Christian, those kinds of terms have become uh, relevant and, and descriptive as well. Um, so what significant co global cultural sort of phenomena, or uh, what, what's the word, capability maybe, can you think of around the time of 1989 that really catapulted us into a postmodern world? Anything? Fall of the Berlin Wall. Certainly the fall of the Berlin Wall is a geopolitical marker, um, which sort of led to more overt globalism. It wasn't, there was less nationalism. The Cold War was over, and, and, and so we didn't think so much in terms of uh, national enemies, uh, although globalism way predates, globalism has been Satan's goal since he got kicked out of heaven, and similarly nationalism is still, uh, you know, very much alive. But I'm thinking of something less geopolitical and just more, I hate to, I'm trying to not give it away. Yes, yeah, specifically what? The internet. The internet. That's right, computers. You know. So, you know, most of us, all of us, I think in this reception, the youngsters are old enough to remember before the Internet. Um, you know, I went through college and most of seminary uh, without the Internet. Well, actually, yeah, all of seminary without the Internet, per se. We had a computer lab. I, nobody had a personal computer. I could go to the lab at Dallas Seminary and print out my papers and stuff. But, you know, college was a typewriter. When I graduated from high school, my parents gave me a typewriter. That was my graduation gift, you know. Um, but then the second time I went through seminary for my Ph.D. was in the uh, 2000s. And so it was, you know, the Internet was much uh, well on its way. So, but what the interesting thing that the Internet did, and it's, it's often called the information superhighway, right, is that it provided a instant, rapid, pervasive transmission for truth claims mm -hmm. with nobody to police the internet superhighway. Now, you go speeding down I-25, you could be pulled over and get a citation. But there's no other than one's own uh, critical thinking skills and their own source of truth, which for us the source of absolute truth is God's word. That's the grid through which we run all of our truth claims. Uh, everyone has their own uh, truth claims, and what happened early on, it's not so much this way anymore, but early on there was this psychological tendency to 
and assume that the internet had authority, that it had credibility, right? In fact, very early on, as people began to realize there's a bunch of junk on the internet, then the, the catchphrase used to be, people would sort of sarcastically say, well, it has to be true. I read it on the internet. Well, that what they mean by that is sort of a slap in the face at the fact that there, in fact, is a lot of unreliable stuff on the internet. But that would, that sarcasm wouldn't be funny if it wasn't rooted in at some point earlier on. People had sort of thought, hey, this is, it's like when you go to your encyclopedias. When I was a kid, you know, my mom had a world book encyclopedia set. And if you wanted to study something, you pulled it off the shelf and you studied it and you assumed that it was trustworthy and, and valid, right? Now, years later, when I went down the rabbit hole of the Luciferian conspiracy, which I've been studying for 15 years, I began to realize that even that was made up and most of that was, most of what we thought was true about human history isn't and everything has an agenda and the people behind the ones who made the world book were trying to promote an agenda and all that but but still the, the mentally you sort of think oh it's this is this this is the standard this is truth you know um and the internet took on that same mentality early on and but very quickly by its nature there was all kinds of junk out there and people began to realize that uh you can't believe everything on the internet, just like you can't believe everything you read, right? So the internet, this is just sort of an important thing to remember. The internet is a conduit. It's a uh, means of getting information. And uh, it's it would be uh, unwise to toss out the internet and say, oh, it's unreliable, just like you wouldn't toss out a library, right? You walk into a library, I guarantee you, uh, within the you know, millions of pages on the books on the shelves, there's a bunch of junk that is outright lies, and there's also a bunch of accurate stuff. And it's your job to go through the library and find and, and discern and use critical thinking and decide what's true and what's not. Well, the Internet's the same way. It's just easier because you can search it and you can find it. So it's not the Internet that's bad. It's that it gave a mechanism to more quickly transmit globally lies and false information. And now, of course, fast forward to today, with over the last year, with all this nonsense about fact-checking, and you know, you've got all these fact-checkers, PolitiFact and Snopes and all that, which are all just globalist, satanic-controlled groups that are basically, you know, if you put fact-check by it, it must be okay. Well, who's the who's fact-checking the fact-checkers, you know? So, um, so, but the internet really, I believe, is single, the single most, single biggest factor in the spread of postmodern thinking, which we haven't even got to what that is. We're about to get there. But it's the reason that, you know, it took, you know, roughly, you know, 5,000 years, so to speak, or 4,000, 6,000 years, whatever, to get to past the pre-modern era. And then once we started having the Industrial Revolution, the Scientific Revolution, the, you know, the Age of Reason and all that, we sort of quickly, I mean, it was just those 200 years from 1789 to 1999, think about what happened in that time frame. I mean, we went from you know, no electricity, no planes, no cars, no penicillin, no, uh, I mean, nothing, to what we have today. So, but similarly, and even exponentially more, the major tenets of postmodern thinking 
have much more rapidly spread and taken hold. And now it's been, you know, 30 some odd years and um, we're reaping the consequence of it. So let's, let's walk through some of the tenets of these. In the postmodern, I mean the pre-modern era, faith was the key word. People understood inherently, as Paul tells us all people do, whether they admit it or not, but they overtly admitted it, that there was something more to life than what you could see and feel and touch. They may not have been a believer, but they had a respect for God and providence. And in fact, um, the, uh, you know, the, even if you think about sort of in our own country, um, you know, by that time, our Constitution had just gone into place, and the settlers had been there for 100 years, and people were beginning to move westward. So we just sort of think about the pioneer days, you know, when these little settlements, these little town squares would pop up, the most respected intellectuals of the day were the preachers. All of the schools that started on the East Coast were all Bible teaching schools, Harvard, Yale, Princeton. Okay? And the Bible was highly valued. Um, again, not everybody was a believer by any means, but you know, you could read the, the documents of our founding fathers, most of whom were not Christians. They were not believers. But they often spoke of God and providence and the Bible with great respect because that was the culture of the day. And so everybody had faith. And when the when the circuit-riding preacher would come to town, you know, everybody, the bars would be empty. You know, everybody would come. They want to hear what he has to say because he's the most learned, he's read, and so forth. And up until, you know, the, up until the modern era and the rise of liberalism, the theology was considered the queen of the sciences. It was highly respected. In fact, the earliest a terminal degree that a person could get in academia was called a THD, not a PhD. PhDs didn't come along till the turn of the 20th century. What, 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 was, a P, what was a THD? A doctor of theology, right? And then as we got smarter in the age of reason, where science began to trump faith as the ultimate arbiter of truth, philosophy began to eclipse theology and became the, the key thing. And now, boy, here we are, you know, 200 years later, and, you know, nobody respects, uh, you know, theology degrees, right? It's more the, the hard sciences, they call it now, right? But remember, all of these great institutions, revered institutions, every one of them started out as a bastion for biblical truth. The Princetonian theologians like uh, uh, Warfield and, um, oh man, my brain is fried, but uh, Hodge, A.A. Uh, uh, a. Hodge and, and his father, I think, Charles Hodge, uh, all those guys were just solid men of faith. Now, they, all, they weren't necessarily always clear because they tended to be more reformed coming out of the Reformation, but they were solid on the Word of God. The best book ever written on the authority of Scripture is B.B. Warfield's book. So these were these were brilliant minds and passionate about the Lord and His Word. And, and yet today, those same institutions scoff and mock 
at people who have, you know, degrees in Bible and Hebrew or Greek or whatever they study. Um, so that's just a real major uh, shift. Well, then when you get to the postmodern era, the debate wasn't so much between faith or reason. It was about everyone's individual bias. So it almost didn't matter anymore whether you think science rules the roost or faith rules the roost. You know, it's sort of the attitude in the postmodern era is it doesn't really matter. You say potato, I say potato, whatever you want. But there's no, there's no, see, so the debate used to be what is the ultimate source of truth? Postmodernism says there is no truth in a manner of speaking, or at least truth cannot be quantified. So, you know, in the, in the modern era, which was the era I grew up in, evangelism would often be things like, uh, you know, 27 proofs of the resurrection, or, you know, uh, why the, the Big Bang is impossible, and you, you, you're always trying to find scientific hard evidence to validate the truths of Scripture. And so you'd get all these books written about how, yes, it is scientifically possible for a man to live in the belly of a great fish for three days. Or, yes, the great flood of Noah, certainly there are scientific signs of it all over the place. And all of that's true. That's, that's true. And there's absolutely a place for uh, rational scientific apologetics to help bolster our faith in the Word of God. But those debates don't matter anymore to the average postmodern millennial. You know, they, you don't sit down at Starbucks with them and say, let me tell you why Jesus rose from the dead. More often than not, they'll say, I don't have a problem with Jesus rose from the dead. Sure. It's super. We believe in the otherworldliness. We, we believe in the supernatural. We believe in a mystical otherworldliness. So that, does, that doesn't bother me. So it's a, it's a major shift in the discussion that took place. So obviously in the pre-modern era, they accepted supernatural explanations. Again, not even if men a believer, but they, could, they, they had no problem with the category of supernatural explanations. But by the time the modern era became entrenched, everything had to have a natural explanation. And how that manifested itself in Christianity and in the church and in the academy with the seminaries and Bible colleges is around the turn of the 20th century, so the late 1800s, early 1900s, they all started kind of going liberal, and they started explaining away the supernatural events of the Bible. And so they would say, you know, the earth, thanks to Darwin, the earth wasn't spoken into existence ex nihilo by God in six literal 24-hour days. Instead, because everybody knows that Darwin says the earth is millions of years old, the, you know, the Genesis account must be one big metaphor, you know, one big allegory. Or, you know, nobody of any intelligence could possibly believe that there was a global flood. It must have just been a localized, you know, high water thing. Or nobody could survive in the belly of a whale or a great fish. So that, that's just an allegory. Or the sun couldn't possibly stand still in Joshua's day. That would throw the whole universe out of whack. So it must have just been a long day. Or the Red Sea couldn't possibly have parted. It must have been low tide. And they started explaining away the miracles because everything had to have a natural explanation. Today, there are no explanations. You don't, we don't need an explanation. Um, 
You know, you, you it's uh, the, in fact, the more bizarre and illogical and nonsensical and absurd something is, the greater acclaim that it has. So you, you want to see how this, uh, in other lectures, I've, I've got some charts, I didn't put them into this one, but how this manifests itself in different arenas. So you, you look at it, say, in the arena of art. I mean, used to, art was very sophisticated. And I'm not an artist, but I had to take an art class in college in my undergrad, and I didn't want to. I was just, everybody said it's an easy elective. So I took it. And, but I actually learned some things, and I, I was able to th think, wow, you know, these old artists, I mean, they, they had some fascinating stuff. There was some real talent there and so, and so forth. But nowadays, you know, you can put a, a tin can with a piece of barbed wire sticking out of it and a banana peel hanging off it, and that's going to win a Nobel Prize or something, you know. So it's the more absurd it is, the better, because it, it, it's, it's no explanation. And so the, the less of an explanation and logic there is, the more highly esteemed uh, that it is um fi and, and we see we could we could talk about a lot of other arenas as well but in where we see the influence of postmodern thinking but in in the pre-modern era the five senses were incomplete they knew there was something more than what you could see and feel and touch and hear and smell again whether they were a believer or not it was just it went without saying it was the world in which they lived because remember these were people that lived you know in in the pre-modern era so they really depended on whether they called it fate or providence or the Lord God Almighty, something other than what they could control, right? They, they literally, you know, if, you know, think about the Little House on the Prairie series, which we've read multiple times with our six kids, that series, and we've been on trips where we visited every one of the homesteads, and it's really a, a special series to us. We love it. But, you know, in that era, if Pa didn't come home with a deer, you didn't eat. I mean, you, you couldn't just order dominoes, right? It was every day was about survival. And, and it was, you know, they, in that sense, they, they prayed and they understood and so forth. And of course, in the modern era, the five senses were complete. Uh, if, if it wasn't tangible, it didn't exist. And then in the postmodern era today, what's interesting is we've come back to the five senses being incomplete. So this is, I often like to pause here and point out that the age in which we live, which I believe is a sign of the times, I believe it's, it's, we're getting closer and closer to the return of our Lord because of the domains that Satan has conquered. And, and, uh, but the, there are some upsides to the fact that no longer do we have to uh, try to convince people that there's something bigger than life out there. Most people today will acknowledge that. But unfortunately, like Proverbs says, to the, to the hungry soul, every bitter thing is sweet. So they're looking to fill this sort of question mark in their life about what's out there through all the wrong places. They're looking at Eastern mysticism and New Age and yoga and all this stuff. But we, we are already have a common ground, which is that there's something more to life than the physicality. And we can use that as an entree for the gospel if we, if we you know, are smart. So the key word in the pre-modern era was efficiency. Efficiency, go back to the Little House on the Prairie metaphor. You know, they, the same, you know, 
the same tools that were used in the garden were also used in the house, and they, they had multiple multitasking of things. They didn't, they didn't have specialized things. The same stick that killed the rat was stuck in the, in the wood stove, burned off, and then used to stir the stew. I mean, they just, that's just what they did. Today, they, they, and they lived in a very, everything was valuable and had, you know, was not disposable. Today, we live in a disposable society, right? Something breaks, you hop in the car, or you, actually you get on Amazon and you order another one, right? Uh, but back then, there was not disposable. Everything was, was reused. It was efficiency. In the modern era, everything became about solutions. What can we do now that we couldn't do before? What can we cure? How can we get from point A to point B faster? Can we fly? You know, can we get to the moon? Those kinds of things. It was all about solutions. But today, it's all about convenience. So if you really stop and think about it, and I, I wish we had time to, to really uh, go down this, this trail a lot longer, but if you really stop to think about it, most of the inventions in our day very few of them are actually accomplishing something that previously was impossible. It just makes it better, makes it fat. Like, you know, the cell phone. I don't need to know that I have four emails and a text waiting on me when this Bible study is over. I mean, can, could I not check those emails when I got to my computer later tonight? Right? Um, I, I don't need to have my computer up here to preach and teach the Word of God and show charts on the screen that that's not a mandatory thing that's not something that is earth-shattering like the discovery of penicillin right um so every you know indoor plumbing right how many of you enjoy indoor plumbing right sure is that mandatory no is it it's not absolutely it's not uh, and by the way the way this world's going you better be prepared for some of the things that have become normal to no longer be normal. And those that are prepared are going to be the ones that survive. But um, so really it's convenience. It's faster cars, faster planes. Um, I mean, there, there have been some, you know, um, you know, incredible marvels of science. We managed in just a few months to, for the first time in decades, come up with a vaccine for a severe upper respiratory virus. <laughs> Imagine that, you know, never had one for the cold, never had one for AIDS. Those are all viruses. We never had one for SARS-1, and it's been over 20 years. But suddenly, we got, we've invented a vaccine, right? So I mean, there's some accomplishments, right? I'm being facetious. I think you know that. Uh, so revelation was the pre-modern word versus scientific method versus no absolute truth. So revelation meaning revelatory from God. Scientific method meaning that's the established standard. If you can't prove it through scientific method it doesn't exist but today there's no absolute truth uh, as i said so they had a high view of the bible in the pre-modern era i mean you know it was it wasn't until the you know 14 1500s that we even had when was the printing press 1500s i think so that we even had the ability to print copies of the bible and even pagans would have considered it sacrilegious and you know very inappropriate to just scoff and kick and throw around the bible there was a high view of the bible they understood even though they may not have trusted in christ alone for salvation that you know this was god's revelation 
in the modern era was a very low view of the Bible. So all of the atheists and skeptics would travel the country debunking the Bible and talking about only a fool would believe the Bible. And, and uh, you know, they, they kicked the Bible out of schools and so forth. But today, there's, you know, a self-serving view of the Bible. It's, if the Bible will bring me power or make me money, you know, I'll, I'll promote it, right? So you've got all these big-time megachurch pastors, a lot of them, that stand up and give lip service to the Bible, but they don't. They don't know. They wouldn't know. Come here from Sikkim from about the Bible. They've never read it. Probably never read it. They don't really know the Bible. They just know that there's a target audience. That if they tout the Bible, it will bring them power, um, and that's the way most people are. So you've got you know this bumper sticker mentality where people will pull verses out of context. They have. Yeah, I listen to a ton of podcasts when I'm on the road, and I'm on the road a lot, and I love to listen to topics about things that I have never studied before. It's educational for me, and um, and so I listened to this last trip to some stuff about Border Patrol agents and really learned some fascinating things, and uh, then I listened just Tuesday, yeah, today's Wednesday, so yesterday I was on the road for a bit, and I listened to uh, a guy talking about the Batman uh, live action show that came out in 63 I think it was um, I used to watch that sh the reruns of it that show every day after school it was it was very fascinating to me I it really left an impression on me and I had the, the dress up clothes and as a youngster I would pretend to be Batman and and uh, but I I can vividly remember sitting in front of our little black and white TV uh, after school usually with a bowl of cereal watching Batman you know, and it, you know, you couldn't record it, you know, it came on when it came on, and you had to be there when it came on, but anyway, so that was fascinating to me, but um, when I listen to a lot of these people on various subjects, all, you know, for years I've done this, a lot of times they'll, they'll invoke the Bible, or they'll talk about the Bible, as if they know what they're talking about, and I'm sitting there thinking, you know, you, it doesn't take long before you can tell, I mean, the first time they call it the book of Revelations, you're going, well, I'm not sure you're probably the best authority to really be talking about the Bible and that kind of stuff. And, but in their whatever the point they were making, it seemed appropriate to appeal to the Bible. And so they would make these passing uh, remarks. And that's, uh, that's the postmodern era. There's no absolute. It's all about bias. So in the premodern era, the mantra was duty. You are your function, right? You, you had your duty. Right, you you know, think about life again. Back on the on the on the prairie, you know, most of the time you were up several hours before dark, and you were milking the cows, checking the getting the eggs, doing you know what you did, getting water from the well, bringing it in, and then uh, you know you you know after being up for several a couple hours doing your chores, you would sit down and have breakfast, and then back then you either would go to school if you were in a situation where you could and your mom or dad didn't need you on the homestead and you had a school near you where you could walk to one of those one-room schoolhouses and learn some math and writing and English, or you went back out and started working again. And then if you were lucky, you took a lunch with you that you could take a 10-minute break and eat a quick apple and, uh, you know, something. And then you worked all afternoon tilling the fields or whatever you did, and, and that was your duty. And then you came home and you did chores around the house. 
And then you sat down and you had dinner. And if you were lucky, you might get to, before bed, sit around and sing a song with Grandpa on his, you know, guitar or maybe play jacks or marbles or something for a few minutes. But, I mean, it's completely opposite today. I mean, today it's all recreation, and most psychologists tell us if you give your kids more than one hour of chores a day, you're abusing them, right? So it's 12 hours of play, one hour of chores, right? Um, but there's no, there's no sense of role and duty. It's all very self-focused. In the modern era, it was desire. You are your feelings, right? You know, if you can dream it, you can accomplish it. And, and we understand. I mean, that was an exciting time to be alive. I mean, there were so many things happening so fast, and the people with means were able to you know, be the first ones that had the, the horseless carriage, and they were the ones to be the first ones to have the TV. You know, my dad talks about when his family first got a TV and how meaningful that was. Till then, they would go, he and his sisters would go to the Sears Roebuck store and watch the TVs that were on display, you know. And that was a big deal. That was quite a privilege, right? And then uh, definition is the key today. You are your Facebook profile. It's all about defining yourself. Image is critical, right? So it went from fulfill your duty to find your dream to frame your disguise. And today, perception trumps reality. I've said this many times that you know, the, the, the makeup artist makes more money for the networks than the speechwriters. That's the reason, you know, you watch Fox News or CNN and it's all these, you know, you know beautiful blonde-haired women that are reading teleprompters, right? Nothing, no offense against that. It's just that, you know, it does, image is more important than knowledge. You know, if I was in charge of a network that was wanting to purvey information... I would find the smartest, most knowledgeable, most educated people about the field, and I wouldn't care what they looked like, right? But we care today. You know, in the old days, Walter Cronkite would present the news, and he was no saint by any means, but just as an illustration. He, he, you know, the news reporters would be a guy sitting at a desk with a paper in his hand, and he would say, 14-car pileup on the interstate... In other news, and he, he would just convey information. Today, it's like you're watching a Universal Studios production when you watch the news. I mean, there's all kinds of theme songs and graphics, and you know, and it's it's hard to really get. Through. And of course, it's all Operation Mockingbird and controlled uh, mind control stuff. But it wasn't always that way, and 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 in you know what we find is that I mean, you, there could be. I mean, there could be an avalanche on a ski resort here in Colorado, and within 30 minutes, they'd have a theme song and a graphic for it. That's just what they do at the news. Graph, go to the graphics. Okay, we need, a, we need a graphic, you know, and they create it. So it's all about image. Substance doesn't matter. Style trumps substance every time. So that the way you make your argument is important and they say back to what we started with what's wrong with wrong if you know if you you, you should never tell someone they're wrong because that's going to offend them but what if they are wrong 
well, then what do I do? Right? I mean, sometimes wrong is wrong. And so you, you, you find yourself actually focusing more on the delivery than you do the substance, and that, that's a real problem. So uh, that's where we'll stop for tonight. But obviously, how, the point of this is how does this affect the gospel? Well, it affects it in a huge way because just as there's no precision, there's no line in the sand, there's no absolute truth in general when it comes to how does a person pass from death to life and spend eternity in heaven instead of hell, the same thing is true. Any old gospel will do. Anything that you can say will do. And that's the reason we started with all these statistics, you know. It doesn't matter their faith group. They all are basically saying, you know, only a certain, you know, that anybody in, in a percentage can get to heaven. They, they're not even having fidelity to their own religion. And the saddest, of course, is uh, Christianity where, uh, you know, only 12% say that Christianity will lead to eternal life. All right, any questions or comments? I hope you'll come back next week. We'll kind of continue down this road, and then I'm going to get into 10. I'm going to step on your toes because I'm going to get eventually into 10 things that the gospel is not and encourage us to strive for clarity and accuracy in the gospel. But any comments or questions here? Put this chart back up, which is where we spent most of our time. All right. I have kind of like a yeah. being a millennial and all. <laughs> <laughs> he was born in 1989. So. You were? I was. Wow. You are the postmodern, you're the birth of postmodernism. <laughs> Incarnate. Here it is. <laughs> so how do you, it's, it's kind of a weird question. So how can I explain some, so I have friends, right? Obviously. But I have friends that I talk to about God in, in certain ways and they tell me, well, you know, kind of like what you were saying, like, I believe in that. I believe in something else, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure, there's something out there, but not really what, exactly what you're saying or whatnot. And it's hard for me to, one, I don't have the knowledge to even try to get them to understand kind of in a way. And yeah. it's kind of like I go based on my, a lot of things that have happened to me. My, like you said, experience. Sure. And it's, so where would you go to try to get, you know, you have the internet, you go everywhere, you find a whole bunch of stuff. It's hard to try to find good information in a way. Yeah, so... You explain that to somebody who doesn't. Yeah, I mean, I think we just need, we need a complete uh, overhaul of our mindset when it comes to evangelism. So first of all, let me quickly say, and I think I said this, but just to make sure, postmodernism is not bad in and of itself. It's the uh, implications and the mindset flowing out of postmodernism that's bad. Just like modernism wasn't bad. I mean, we like penicillin. We like air travel, right? Or we used to before COVID. <laughs> but, uh, so, but it's the implications of it as it relates to the gospel and, our, and, and, and Christianity that, that are a problem. So, you know... I'm not criticizing millennials or people that, that are even more so entrenched in this postmodern mindset than, than we are, but we're all entrenched in it to some degree. So, but I think we need a complete overhaul of how we do it because like you, what I end up finding is when I'm talking to someone, it becomes very quickly 
a almost a debate, not 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 always hostile or intense, but just a like you said, well, that's true for you, or I don't believe that, or what, and so then my mind goes, well, how can I convince them? And what I think the Scripture teaches, and maybe this is a good corrective, because maybe it was wrong for us during the modern era to sit down and debate, you know, you know, and use the Josh McDowells of the world, 37 reasons why Jonah really did live in a whale, or 42 reasons why the resurrection, I mean, maybe that in a way, I mean, all of that's good and has its place, but maybe that really sort of set a precedent that somehow it's our job to prove something to somebody. And what the Bible teaches is that the gospel is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes it. It's our job to present the gospel, and then Paul says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So, so what, what I am trying to, to learn to do and over the last many years have, have tried to do is you know, use those types of discussions as an entree for the gospel, but to very quickly sort of turn it into presenting the gospel, not even in an overt way. You know, used to you had, you know, EE, Evangelism and Explosion, CWT, Continuing Witness Training or Christian Witness Training or something, all these programs and methodologies. And the gospel, I don't think, ever was intended to be codified into some type of methodology. I think it was the gospel. It was good news. You just sort of share it. And so, you know, I try to be intentional about finding ways to respond in the, in the back and forth dialogue with the gospel without identifying it as the gospel. Like I'll say, you know, well, that, that's interesting that you're, you're kind of open to this kind of stuff because, you know, surely, you know, you would agree that Jesus is a historical figure. And, you know, one time he said that I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And he said, uh, on another time, he, he said, unless you're born again, you can't see heaven. And uh, so I'm, what am I doing? I'm actually presenting the infallible truth of God's word because, you know, the, the word of God is quick and powerful like a two-edged sword. So when I make apologetic arguments, that's JB talking. And again, I'm not, I, I, I will tell you uh, as an apologist and teaching apologetics, I teach a, a presuppositional model, but I'm not, you know, like, Cornelius Van Til, where I've written off anything remotely rational or evidential. I think there's a place for that. Sometimes giving the evidences and giving the rational arguments, like the cosmological argument, the ontological argument, all that can be helpful because it sort of starts a dialogue. But at the end of the day, I'm absolutely convinced based on the Word of God that I'm not going to argue anybody into the faith. So what I want to do is very quickly let the Word of God and that double-edged sword um, do its job. And the whole point of this study on Wednesday nights that we're doing is that if we're not using the sharp sword correctly, it's not going to have its, it's not going to do its job. In other words, if I'm presenting a false gospel, it's powerless, it's impotent. So we want to get it right, and because that's where the real power lies, we've got to share the the accurate gospel. So I mean, I don't have an easy answer. I'm certainly not perfect at this at all. I I tend to get into arguments and get in debates and get frustrated. But I, my caution would just be, be good listeners. Um, people today can pick up on fakeness, so be genuine. Don't be defensive. Don't try to win. Remember what it's about. You care for their soul. They're going to die in a Christless eternity. And just they one of the easiest ways to connect with 
millennials, in, in my experience, is sincerity. Just really hurting where they're hurting, feeling what they're feeling. They don't like to be viewed as a project or another feather in a cap. They want to be viewed as, hey, this guy's real, man. We had a good talk. And that gives you credibility. And then maybe, because you got to, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. If they, if they shut you out, they're not going to hear. So what I don't want to do is drive them away if I can help it um, and take every opportunity to just listen, but get the gospel in there. You know, Did you know Jesus, he said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, whoever believes in me has everlasting life. You know? He said, whoever believes in me has passed from death to life. You know, so we can use the word of God. It doesn't have to be written in a Schofield reference Bible with a leather cover. And we don't have to... You know, I think I've used this illustration before, but it came from a, a guy at an evangelism conference I heard 30 years ago when I was in college, so longer than that. Um, but he said, you know, when someone argues with you over how sharp the sword is, you know, don't argue with them, just stick them with it. You know? <laughs> so if, you, if I am sitting at, across from someone and, and, and maybe I do have my Bible or maybe usually it'll be on my phone and I'm showing them a verse, if they sort of act like, well, but you know, how can we really believe the Bible? Who knows if it's true or not? I'll just put it aside. And, and then I'll recite scripture. Just not like, well, then I'll just recite it. I'm not going to tell them that's what I'm doing, but I'm going to use it. Because the Word of God is quick and powerful, whether it's written on a chalkboard, put on a PowerPoint slide, in a bound book called the Bible, or on a phone screen, or just coming from my mouth. So the gospel is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes it, and we want to just be clear on that. So that's just some food for thought, but it's a tough world, and that's by design today. I mean, that's not by design, but it's part of the plan of the ages. So. Anybody else? thinking about when you were talking about you know the internet being the um you know the the, the integral change at that yeah time. but the thing i was thinking about in at that time too you know i was thinking about you can't minimize the power of people like oprah winfrey and oh, yeah. phil donahue and then you think about hollywood it's and then also how college you know, higher education became so accessible to everybody. And I remember what it was like. I came from a, you know, my parents, well, my dad graduated high school, but I didn't come from a highly educated family. And so when I got to college, and I mean, these professors, I mean, oh, my oh, you revered I them. looked up yeah. to them. I revered, and they were, I mean, the stories that I had from my college. Are oh, they're just, nuts, yeah. People can't even believe it. So I know the Internet is, you know, such a huge part of it but boy when you think about tv and what that did and how these people like oprah and all were revered yeah and the guests that they had on so as a christian you look like a moron compared to what these other people oh no were doubt saying. yeah so one it's hard to sort of crystallize everything distill everything down into three columns and a chart sure, sure. and i don't mean to imply in any way that these were hard fast lines or whatever my point about the internet was simply that it provided a conduit for the rapid dissemination of this, just as TV did, mm -hmm. and just as you know the networks and cable television. Cable television came out in what eighty or eighty early eighties, so that was another. That was similar to the internet. It was another massive way to disseminate information. And all these people you're talking about, absolutely they did. But what we have to remember, which is really kind of beyond the the scope here, it's more in line with my Spirit of the Antichrist series, is that 
there is a Luciferian agenda that goes way back in all of this. Higher education, controlling the educational institutes, controlling government schooling, controlling the networks, controlling everything is, is by design to mind control, you know, a generation. And we are now reaping, we're seeing the manifestation of that like never before. So, but yeah, Oprah Winfrey and people like that. Also, you remember Bill Clinton is a classic illustration of the postmodern mindset very early on in 92 or 3 when he's like, depends on the meaning of is, right? You know, so, uh, and redefining certain things that we'll just, I think we all know what we're talking about, that everybody knew how, what they constituted and yet, well, that's not that, you know, that, you know, just meaning has, there's no meaning, there's no, there's no inherent meaning uh, in words anymore. And, uh, and so that was uh, another illustration. And then it's just gotten worse and worse and worse and worse and worse today. So The funny thing is, when you mentioned about Walter Cronkite, before you even said his name, the thought that I had was, I read a thing where he was at a party once, and this woman came up to him and said, oh, Mr. Cronkite, uh, you look so good in that blue shirt and that tie. And he, he was so frustrated because he looked and he said, did you listen to what I had to say? You know, he was frustrated that she cared I know. about what he looked like. Even back then, yeah. Exactly. That reminds me of the story about Tom Brokaw, who got his start on some uh, local, local television. South Dakota, I think. Yeah, yeah. Was he in South Dakota or oh, Nebraska? South Dakota. Yeah, yeah, okay. Somewhere around Yankton, there. Yankton, and so some guy comes up to him at Macy's in New York City, and he says, aren't you, aren't you Tom Brokaw? And Tom goes, oh, as a matter of fact, I am. He said, didn't you, didn't you used to be on WKR or whatever it is in, in Podunkville, uh, I think it was Nebraska, but South Dakota, wherever, and Brokaw's thinking, man, this guy, man, he's been following my career for a long time. And he goes, well, yes, as a matter of fact, I did. And the guy goes, I thought that was you. Whatever happened to you anyway? <laughs> so, <laughs> so pride. All right, well, let's... Uh, Let's call it a night, and we'll continue next week with our look at uh, the nature and essence of the gospel and what it is not.